you take what is taught, you take what you believe, and you measure it up against the scriptures to see whether it lines up or not. If it lines up, you can know that you are believing and doing what God has commanded to be believed and taught, because the canon sets the rule by which everything else is measured. Thanks for joining us on The Truth Pulpit with Don Green, founding pastor of Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and we're continuing our series, How Did We Get the Bible? So far, we've established the reliability of the biblical manuscripts and their transmission down through the ages. But you've probably heard another question come up, namely, how do we know that the collection of books that make up the scriptures are the ones God intended to include? Didn't some 4th century council arbitrarily take a vote or something? Well, Pastor Don Green will put all that speculation to rest as he begins a message titled, Early Christians and the Biblical Canon. Don will give us four unique aspects of life in the early church that will help us understand how God sovereignly decreed the canon we have today. Let's join our teacher now in the Truth Pulpit. In the last half of the first century, A.D. 50 to A.D. 100, the New Testament books were written, and they were copied, and they began to be distributed. The apostolic era came to a close at the end of the first century, and it's in those last 50 years after Christ had died and resurrected, I always like to join those two together, the Apostle Paul was writing his letters. The Apostle John wrote the book, his books and the book of Revelation. That all took place in the last half of the first century, 50 to 100 A.D. Now, in the next 50 years, 100 to 150 A.D., and again, we're talking very generally, and, and these dates can be sliced and diced a little differently. In the next 50 years, those books became more widely known. They started to be distributed among other churches, and they would exchange the letters and copies of letters that they had. Remember, there are a lot of different locations, and so the churches were in communication with each other, and one church would give the letter from Paul that they had to another and vice versa, and so these letters start to spread around like that. The next 50 years, 150 to 200 A.D., these books began to be translated into other languages. We alluded to this last time. They were translated into, into Latin, into Syrian language, into Coptic, the Egyptian language. They were translated. Teachers began to write commentaries on them. And so they were written, they were distributed, and then they start to be copied, translated, and commentaries being written. And then over the next 100 years after that, from 200 to 300 A.D., stay with me, I'm about done with the numbers here. And remember that you can ask me for my notes and you can get all of this down later. After that, the individual books began to be collected into a single unit. We're used to having a New Testament which has all 27 of the books in one place. Well, that wasn't always the case. And here in the, here in the uh, third century, they started to collect the books so that they would have them all in one place. And then in the following century, 300 to 400 A.D., the church fathers, the leaders of the church, finalized the, the list of the canonical books. They finalized the books that said, these books are in and the other books are out. 
And so they formalized the list and said, we are establishing for all time that these are the authoritative books that are inspired by God, which we must believe and teach and practice, and there are no others to be included in them. And so Athanasius did that, the councils of Hippo in A.D. 393, and Carthage in A.D. 397 established these lists. By 400 A.D., this was established, it was settled in terms of what was recognized to be God's Word. Now, with that little historical overview in mind, here's the question. How do we know that they got it right? How do we know that they got it right? I mean, look, we've all seen stories, and it just gets worse and worse as the years go by as they try to introduce lost books of the Bible. I have a book on my shelf, The Lost Books of the Bible, and you know, what about the Gospel of Thomas or other things like that? And now, 2,000 years later, people are trying to inject other things into the Bible. Well, how do we know that we can avoid those, reject those without fear of missing something? And how do we know that the early church got it right? Well, like I said, in one level, we can say these books were self-authenticating. It was evident from their own content that these were the books that God had given us. But that's not what we're going to address. What we're saying is is that God providentially directed the early church to affirm the right books. And this is where being a part long-term of our church or being a part of any church that is teaching Scripture and theology systematically, this is an example where it really starts to pay off. Because we've established the doctrine of providence here, the idea that God is providentially at work, God is directing everything that ever happens in order to accomplish His will. Now, how much more so, that's a perfect process, there are no details that go missed by God, how much more so when He is directing His people to recognize and affirm the writings that He's actually given? How much more so would, would He be directing that to make sure that the right books were kept for all time? It's obvious, the answer to that. And what we're going to see, we're going to look at four unique aspects of life in the early church that would help us understand how God used that process and give us a little bit of a sense of the the human element that led to the scriptures that we hold in our hand today. What can we look at? Well, you can start turning to Luke chapter 24 for our first one. And uh, we can say it this way. Again, we're asking the question, how about the New Testament canon? How did it work to provide that? And the first thing that we would say is that there was the existence of the Old Testament. The existence of the Old Testament. Christians were used to the idea of a canon because they had already received the Old Testament scriptures. There was an established canon given through the Jews of the day that had been closed for 400 years, and Christians had an Old Testament canon, what we call an Old Testament canon, which they knew and received and respected as the Word of God. They already had the Old Testament. So if you look at Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus, after His resurrection, in Luke 24, verse 44, said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses 
and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, referring to the threefold division of the law as they received it at that time. And Jesus says, well, you know the Old Testament scriptures, specifically the section by Moses, that which is known as the prophets, and that headed up by the Psalms. You know that that had to be fulfilled. Everything that was written had to be fulfilled. So he is appealing to, he is reminding them of the Old Testament canon that witnessed to him and that all of those writings had to be fulfilled. So... This is just an indication, a reminder to us that they already had a principle of canon established in their religious mindset, you could say, in their spiritual mindset, in their convictions. They knew that God had given a revelation with fixed boundaries, and within the four corners of that revelation was where God had spoken. That was already established in their mind with the Old Testament Scriptures. Now, what they did... Then, having that in place mentally, and then as they start, as the process starts to come, as these apostolic writings are given to them, as the gospels are distributed, they followed that pre existing pattern of the Old Testament canon to realize over time that they needed to establish their own canon, the New Testament canon, that revelation which testified to Christ and was the fulfillment of the Old Testament canon that they had already come to know. So what is it that led to the formation of the New Testament canon? Well, they had the prior experience of having the Old Testament, the original canon given through the Jews. That is what they had, and therefore it was very natural for them to establish a a New Testament canon based on the prior pattern that they had received from their spiritual forefathers. So, the existence of the Old Testament helped establish the New Testament canon. There you go. That's number one. Now, number two, and we'll get into a bit more Scripture now. Number two, again, very practical. And when you see these things from God's Word, you realize how practical and how obvious it all is. Secondly, we could say it was the the requirements of public worship. The requirements of public worship helped them formulate the and recognize the New Testament canon. This is the second impetus for the development of the New Testament canon. And it goes like this. The early church read God's Word in public worship. We do too here at Truth Community, especially on Sunday morning. We make a big point of that. And so they they had this practice of reading God's Word in public worship. Now, Remembering that the process is unfolding and that there are new letters from the apostle coming and and circulating and all of that, well, understand that this puts the church, this puts leadership in a position where they need to know what to read. If you're only supposed to read God's Word in a public worship service, well, how are you going to know what it is that you read? The very nature that they needed to read God's Word meant that they had to distinguish between that which was God's Word and that which was not in order for them to be able to do things properly. This element of the public reading of God's Word is found in multiple places in Scripture, and I want to take the time to show these things to you. 
Turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, if you would. Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. And verses that perhaps you've wondered, why, why would this even be in the Bible? It, because it seems, so, it seems so mundane. All of a sudden you realize that there was a great purpose in the things that, were, that Paul had written in his letters. Colossians chapter 4, verse 16 just establishing for you the centrality of the reading of Scripture in early church worship. Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, toward the end of his letter, he says, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So, Paul says, I want this letter read. I want you to send it so that it's read in Laodicea. And then when, they, when you get their letter, read it as well. Paul wanted his letters read publicly to the early church. Look at 1 Thessalonians, the next book over, chapter 5, verse 27. Paul says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Read this publicly so that all the brethren will hear it. In 1 Timothy, and I, we're just going naturally through the current order of the canon as we have it, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13, Paul says, "...until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching." And one more in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle John said, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, beloved here, there's nothing really mystical about what we're saying here. There's nothing hidden here. Reading a book in church at that level implied that it was on the same level as the Old Testament which they received as the written Word of God. And so when the Old Testament was read in the church and then you add these letters or the Gospels from the apostolic sources and you read them, it places them on the same level as what had already been established as being the Word of God. And so the Apostle Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it very quickly. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The word of God, the word of God. You have the Old Testament canon, you have my letters, and you are properly receiving it as revelation from God, and I commend you for your response to it, is what he's saying. Now, why is that so important? How does this relate to distinguishing the true Word of God from something else? Well, here's the challenge that they faced. There were also false letters in circulation. 
There were forgeries. There were people claiming to speak in the name of Paul that were not, that sent out letters as though they were from Paul, but they were not. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, you can look at that with me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. We'll start in verse 1 just to pick up the full sentence. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul says, I realize that there are letters that look like they came from me and that they are disturbing you and upsetting you because they are, they are contradicting what you have received from us in the past. Now, these forgeries carried weight. They were a threat because they appeared to be written by Paul. And therefore, they had to distinguish what is a forgery and what is the real letter from Paul that we read, that we follow, that we believe, and that we obey. And so, again, it's, this is sometimes kind of hard. We're not used to thinking about our experience with Christianity this way. But put yourself in the sandals of the first century church. And they don't have the benefit of a bound Bible with an Old and New Testament and a nice calfskin leather cover and all of it printed and established by, by 2,000 years of attestation and tradition giving it over to us. They don't have the benefit of that. What they have is they are in the fledgling days of the early church before these things are established and the very existence of the church and what they would believe and what they would do and what they would receive was at stake. And so, here's the thing that makes this so important. This is why we are confident in the historical process that led to the formation of the New Testament canon. These men who were at the forefront, at the very, at the very cutting edge of the delivery of God's Word, very committed with the Spirit of God at work in them and having to make decisions that, that had great consequence, examined things carefully and knew to distinguish what was true and what wasn't. They had information, they had access, they had sources that we don't have today. They were right there on the scene and made these decisions based on information that they had, guided by the Spirit of God in the preservation of His Word, and made the decisions because the practical worship of the church from week to week was at stake. I think it's remarkable to think that something so simple, seemingly so mundane, what do you read in a worship service, would become a flashpoint for being able to distinguish that which was true from that which was false. Well, to them, this was a matter of great consequence. Churches today that don't read Scripture in their public worship center wouldn't identify with why that's so important, but Scripture makes it important. And there was one other aspect that helped in this as well. The Apostle Paul authenticated his letters with his own signature. 
And I think this is interesting to see. Let's take a moment to look at this. In order to help distinguish the true letters from the forgeries, Paul had a unique way of signing his letters that helped the early church recognize the true from the false. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, for example. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 21. I've got about four passages here. And then we'll get into some more historical background in our final two points. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 21. The Apostle Paul says, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. In Galatians chapter 6, Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11 says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. In Colossians chapter 4, we'll go back to Colossians chapter 4 here. Verse 18, Colossians 4 verse 18, I realize we're going kind of quickly. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment, grace be with you. Here's my signature. This is the authenticating mark. One last one. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way that I write. So, Paul's unique signature... It's not a literal seal, but it's like a seal that authenticates his letters. He signed them in a way so that the early church could recognize the real thing. And that was a protection against forgeries. Now, why was that so important? It was so important to keep God's word from being polluted and distorted by things that were not really revelation from God. And so Paul providentially and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, set apart his letters with a unique signature to distinguish his true letters from those that were written in his name but were merely forgeries, which were not the real thing. So, how did the early church select the books, recognize the books is a better way to say it. How did the early church recognize the works that were truly from God? Well, they looked for these distinguishing marks. They looked, for, they looked for the authentic signature of Paul, and they were able to distinguish him from forgeries that way. And the leaders had to know that. I can't emphasize this enough. They had to know what to read publicly and what to ignore, what to leave out. And so, from their position of spiritual responsibility, I mean, think about it. Think about it. Put yourself in the sandals again of an early church leader who has responsibility for the welfare of the souls of those that are in front of him and has a responsibility before God to get it right. This is the case for spiritual leaders of all time. But in this case, where, where revelation, new revelation is being received, the, the, the immensity of the responsibility upon them to get that right so that, so that they would not, in the name of God, stand before a congregation or sit before a congregation, however they did it back then, and, and say, this is the Word of God. They had to get that right. And so this was a matter of extreme consequence to them. 
And so they would have paid careful attention to make sure that they were reading the true Word of God in the service of worship to God and not letting it be defiled and defamed by forgeries. They took great care on these things. And so the requirements of public worship led to the formation of the New Testament canon. The prior existence of an Old Testament canon helped them form an Old Testament canon. So you think about it this way. Their minds were already trained and conditioned to think about a canonical scripture, a unit, a a unit of revelation from God. They were already conditioned to, to think that way. And then new revelation from the apostles who were authorized by Christ, who did signs and wonders to attest to their being agents of God in his revelation. And then you start to get letters from him. Oh, we got to get this down. We got to get this right. Very practical. We'll pause right there for today, but Pastor Don Green will present part two of his message, Early Christians and the Biblical Canon, next time here on The Truth Pulpit. And we do hope you'll join us. But right now, here's Don with some exciting ministry news. Well, my friend, today I have an opportunity to offer you something for free that goes beyond what we've done on our radio broadcast. It's a 10-message CD album titled The Bible and Roman Catholicism. It's a series I recently completed at Truth Community Church, taking Scripture and evaluating what Catholics teach and believe about the Pope, about Mary, about the Mass, and about the whole nature of salvation. It's a resource that you really need to have in your hands, either for yourself or for your friends and loved ones, to know how to interact with them. And it's available for free at the place that Bill's going to point you to right now. Just visit us at thetruthpulpit.com and click on Radio Offers to learn more. I'm Bill Wright, and we'll see you next time for more from The Truth Pulpit.